Strategic Financial Partners presents the Rush Hour Podcast, where the rubber meets the road on the economy, stock market, and personal finance. Now here's your host, Matt Rush. Welcome to the Rush Hour Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rush, and with me today is Bob Stein. Bob is the Deputy Chief Economist for First Trust and is responsible for analyzing economic indicators as well as writing economic commentary. Prior to joining First Trust, Bob was Assistant Secretary for the Economic Policy at the United States Treasury Department. Bob, I've had the pleasure to hear you speak many times over the years, and I've always found your insights to be spot on. Thank you for joining me today. My pleasure, Matt. Looking forward to it. I want to talk about the election, and one thing I thought the 2016 election caused was many of us to doubt the exit polls. So this election could be pretty important if you look at everything that's on the ballot. Would you give us some idea of what exactly is up for grabs on the ballot this year and maybe what tax policy could look like under a Biden administration? Yeah, well, the big issue, Matt, to me, isn't really as much the presidency. It's whether there's a Democratic sweep. Let's imagine a scenario where where President Trump wins re-election. In that scenario, there aren't going to be any significant changes to tax policy over the next four years. Let's imagine a scenario where Joe Biden wins the election, but uh, the Republicans keep control of the U.S. Senate. In that environment, there won't be any significant changes to tax policy over the next few years, other than possibly one, um, which is that um, instead of agreeing to Joe Biden's proposed tax hikes, the Republicans might agree to, to widen the band or increase the deduction for state and local taxes, which is something near and dear to the hearts of many uh, Democrats who hail from high tax states. Republicans would normally not like to do this, but given the fact that there'd be a new president, they'd be rejecting many of his other proposals. And frankly, it's a tax cut, not a tax hike. I think they'd agree to it. What would be very different, Matt, is if Joe Biden wins and the Democrats keep the House and take the Senate as well. If there's a Democratic sweep, and I put the odds on that are very close to 50% right now. Um, there, you'd probably see some significant tax increases, in particular uh, on individuals. I think uh, the individual, the top income tax rate on individuals will go back to 39.6%, where it was under President Clinton for many years and was for four years under President Obama, his second term. I also think the corporate tax rate uh, would go from 21% where it is today, not all the way back up to 35%, which is where it was for about a generation before Trump and the Republican Congress cut it in 2017. But they'd probably go from 21% back up to 28%, halfway to where it used to be. So those are among the changes I think would happen. There's some other proposals out there. I think we'd also like end up seeing a, a, a reduction in the exemption amount for the estate tax, as well as a couple of other changes. I think uh, Biden's proposals would be more sweeping, but he'd end up not being able to accomplish all of them. Okay, so you're given a 50% chance that uh, that the Dems sweep. Let's, let's take a look at exactly what they would have to do in order to get there. Uh, right now, the the House is pretty much entirely up for grabs. And how much of the Senate do you, do you think is up for grabs at this point? Well, uh, I mean, in terms of up for grabs for the House, um, it is true that every member has to run for your election this year. But I put the odds on the Republicans taking the House at pretty much near zero. Um, in terms of the U.S. Senate, like every two-year cycle, they're about one-third, about 33 of 34 seats are up for grabs. I think it's 
34 seats this time around. Actually, it might be 35 because there's a special election in Georgia to fill the seat left by Johnny Isaacson. Um, and uh, in the Senate, you know, here are the key races. Uh, uh, you know, right now, the Republicans have 53 seats in the U.S. Senate. They're very likely to take Alabama as well, so that puts them at 54. But there are a couple senators on their side, on the Republican side, who are pretty much goners. I think Cory Gardner is likely a goner in the state of Colorado. I think Martha McSally in the state of Arizona is likely a goner as well. So that brings it down to 52, the majority of the Republicans. Then they have several vulnerabilities. Um, I think uh, uh, North Carolina, they're very vulnerable. I think they're also vulnerable um, uh, in, uh, let's see, uh, uh, in the state of Maine with Susan Collins. Um, and, you know, some people are talking about vulnerabilities in Georgia. And I think in the end, the Republicans will keep both seats. But it's plausible that in an extreme outcome election, extremely positive outcome election for Joe Biden, um, and I'm not saying that's my base case, although I do think he's the favorite, um, that they could take more seats than that, possibly South Carolina, um, you know, uh, possibly Texas with Joe Cornyn. Now, again, I'm not saying, I don't think Lindsey Graham's going to lose. I don't think the senators from Georgia are going to lose. I don't think Joe Cornyn from Texas is going to lose. But I could easily see Gardner, McSally, uh, possibly Collins, possibly, I think it's Tom Tillis from North Carolina going down. And that would take it to 50-50. And if Joe Biden wins the presidency, he'd have a slight edge in the U.S. Senate because his vice president could be used to break ties. So First Trust has written about the Biden tax policy, and I believe you guys actually call it the Big Five, and you've, you've already touched on a few of those with the corporate tax rate, um, some income tax changes. Uh, what about step-up in basis at death? Do, do you think that something like that is going to be uh, likely to come to fruition with us being in the middle of a pandemic and trying to recover in 2021? Well, that's a great question, Matt. So I, I've been taking a look at this politically, and I think it really depends on how many seats in the Senate Biden can run up. I mean, if he does take the Senate, which is not guaranteed, but it, you know, if he has a slender majority, I think the step up basis at death, which is current law, would remain in the law. Just so your your uh, listeners know, that means you know, if you inherit one hundred seventy five thousand dollars in Exxon stock when a parent passes away, you don't have to go and find out what they paid for it. All you have to know is that at the time of death, the stock was worth one hundred seventy five thousand dollars, and if a decade later you sell for two fifty. Then you've got you've got a seventy five thousand dollar gain that you have to pay tax on. So uh, the gain that occurred when uh, your parent owned it is not taxed. So the problem there with, with this, if they eliminate the step up basis and say you have to pay not only on your gain but your parents' gain as well, is that it's administratively difficult. I mean, some people just don't know what their what their what their heirs. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, what their uh, uh, what the decedent paid. The person who passed away paid for that asset. And so it's an administrative nightmare. I think there are a lot of wealthy people in Scottsdale, Arizona, Matt. And they're going to inherit stock. And there's a senator from, from uh, Arizona named Kirsten Sinema, who's a Democrat. Um, you know, she walks around with interesting hair colors all the time. But she actually, her voting record is quite moderate, relatively speaking, for the Democrats. I, I don't think she'll look very favorably on that. And so I think instead of doing elimination of step-up basis of death, they're more likely to uh, reduce the exemption amount for the estate tax uh, as an alternative policy. I think that would have the votes. Eliminating the step-up basis would be difficult to get to unless the Democrats really 
you know, end up with 54 or 55 seats in the U.S. Senate, then then they can do a lot more things that they otherwise couldn't. All right. Let's go back to the presidential side of things with each candidate's advantage over the other. What do you think are some advantages that Trump might carry over Biden as well as Biden over Trump? And you know, what do you think is likely to be the deciding factors? So here are a few advantages for President Trump. One advantage uh, is that he does not have to win the popular vote in order to win. If Joe Biden doesn't win the popular vote, he's going down in flames. President Trump could lose the popular vote by a few percentage points, possibly, and still win in the Electoral College. He has the advantage of being able to focus on China and claiming that uh, because of Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, and his purported business ties with China, that Joe Biden can't confront China the way President Trump would. He's going to argue that Joe Biden's in poor mental health, and he's also going to hope that the debates lead to a turning point in the polling averages. Now, there are some advantages for for Joe Biden as well. Um, uh, One is that even though President Trump can win the Electoral College without winning the popular vote, President Trump ain't going to do it if he's behind in the polls by seven percentage points, which is on average about where he is today. So um, uh, I think President Trump can win, but he needs to narrow that polling average advantage uh, for Joe Biden down to roughly maybe three or three and a half percentage points in order to be able to do it. Um, We've just gone through another advantage for Joe Biden. We've just went through a deep recession. We still have high lingering unemployment. We're seeing unemployment claims still coming in around a million a week, initial unemployment claims. We have the possibility of another wave of COVID-19 in the fall. And if that happens, that would probably inure to the the, uh, challenger, Joe Biden's benefit. A couple other advantages. One is faithless electors. I mean, uh, President Trump, even though he lost a popular vote in 2016, he won the Electoral College on paper by 70 votes. So even if a few people were to defect, it wasn't going to do damage to his possibility of winning the Electoral College. But this time around, imagine a scenario where um, he ends up with 270 electoral votes, loses the popular vote by, say, three points, ends up with 270 electoral votes, 268 for Joe Biden. Imagine what's going to be dangled in front of each and every Trump elector. Fawning interviews on 60 Minutes, fawning interviews on Good Morning America, movie deals, book deals, TV show deals, all to entice them to switch their vote to Joe Biden. And if it's a narrow electoral college victory for President Trump, I could imagine this is going to happen after the election. So, um, and by the way, I've talked to some experts. It's legal, okay, because these electors have complete discretion about who they vote for, unless their state has a law saying they have to go one way. But most states don't. Supreme Court says they have to follow state law. Most states do not have limitations on how they use their vote. But here's another and the final advantage for Joe Biden. If you look at the past three incumbents, Matt, who have won re-election, so, so those would be Bill Clinton in 1996, George Bush in 2004, Barack Obama in 2012, each of them inundated the airwaves on TV and on radio with very harsh, hostile ads towards their opponent in the spring and summer, defining their opponent in a very harsh and negative way before the fall election campaign season in September really got got going. So remember back in 1996, you look pretty young, Matt, so maybe you don't remember this, but but uh, the Clinton group knew they were going to be going against Bob Dole pretty early. So they inundated the airwaves with ads about Bob Dole and Newt Gingrich. 
Dole Gingrich, Dole Gingrich, Dole Gingrich, all you heard. They want to cut Medicare, Medicaid, education, and the environment. That's all we heard for months on end. So it really uh, uh, prejudiced the voter against and made the voter hostile to Bob Dole before he even got going in the fall. We saw a similar thing in 2004. Remember John Kerry with his war record for Vietnam? He got eviscerated in the summer with all these ads about swift, uh, swift boat veterans from Vietnam talking dirt about John Kerry. Now, I'm not saying the dirt was wrong, but they were talking dirt about him, okay? Um, and so it really, you know, it, it revealed to a lot of voters what John Kerry had done in the 1970s when John Kerry basically smeared a lot of Vietnam veterans to promote his own political fortunes in the future. And then in 2012, we were inundated with ads from the Obama team about uh, this guy from Bain Capital, Mitt Romney. Bain Capital would take over companies, fire a bunch of workers, wouldn't give them health insurance. We had people on TV talking about how they lost their jobs, they lost their health insurance, and um, uh, and their wife died from cancer. They basically, basically blamed it on Mitt Romney. So what have we seen over the past few months from the Trump people? We haven't seen a large-scale, hostile, organized effort against Joe Biden in the same way we saw in 96, 2004, and 2012. So I think, I think President Trump has his work cut out for him. I think he's an underdog in this campaign. So whenever you're talking about Biden's advantages and what he was likely to be campaigning on, you, you talked about the, the the recession and lingering unemployment. And I know that we've got an October 29th report that's coming out on real GDP for the quarter. Do you think that that's likely to cause any type of recency bias? And what do you think that report's actually going to look like? Well, great. Great question, Matt. So so we saw a decline at around a 32 percent annual rate for the second quarter of this year, worse since the Great Depression for any one individual quarter. But I think we're going to see an increase at about a 20% annual rate. And um, if anything, it's going to be higher than that rather than lower. And so that's going to be a great number um, for President Trump a week before the election. The problem is, I think in the end, people people have an impression of where they are versus where they were a couple of years ago. And if the unemployment rate is still 8 9 10%, even though we'll see a good print for President Trump, and that will help him relative to where he would otherwise be, um, the economy is still going to be a little bit of a drag on his campaign. Uh, you know, if, he, if, if this presidential election had been held on February 10th, he'd win easy. But it's going to be held on November 3rd. The unemployment rate is going to look much different than it did back in February. So let's shift gears before we wrap up. Like I said in the introduction, I've had the pleasure to hear you speak very very many times. And the one concept that I've heard you talk about before is the treasury having a 50 or hundred year note. And I know right now we've got debt service levels very low. Our net interest is dropping. Why do you think that concept is not getting any more traction? That's a great question. I, you know, when I was at the treasury department for four years under president Bush, um, I would always try to get the debt managers to extend the maturity of the debt. And they would just pat me on the head and say the same thing every time, which is that Bob, if we extend the maturity of the debt, long-term interest rates are usually higher than short-term interest rates, so it will cost the Treasury money over time. And so I would pat them on the head right now, or right back, and I would say, do you have term life insurance? Most of them would say yes. And I would say that costs you money each and every year. Chances are you're never going to collect on that policy. So my point was the same as their point about interest rates. It doesn't matter if we're losing money on average over time. It's a risk reducer. 
If we can refinance our national debt into longer term maturities, right now the average maturity of the national debt is right around I think, six years. So if we could refinance it into longer term maturities, 50 year debt, 100 year debt, even if we pay a little bit more year by year, paying a premium like we do for term life insurance, it so substantially lowers the risk profile of the debt that uh, it enables us to spread the payments over a longer period of time, not have to pay principal back every six years typically, um, that it would, um, uh, it would lower our risk profile and could actually lower interest rates across the board because people would know that the U.S. government was always well positioned to pay back principal. So uh, I, do, I would not hold my breath. I was hoping that President Trump would lean on Steve Mnuchin at Treasury and get him to issue longer term maturities. Hasn't happened yet. Bob, I thought you were spot on. Thank you very much for your timely insights. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Matt. Would love to do it again. For more content from Bob and his team, you can read their commentary at ftportfolios.com in the research and commentary section. You can also follow him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Bob Stein underscore FT. Or you can follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Matt Rush SFP. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to be notified as new episodes are released. And if you're interested in our firm or would like to contact me, check us out online at strategicfinancialpartners.com. 